And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matchett. I am Deputy Political Editor at the paper. With us as normal is our political editor, Alistair Grant, our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, and our political correspondent, Hannah Brown, uh, of no relation, I realise. I haven't pointed that out before. But welcome to all of you. It's been another busy, packed week uh, in, in Scottish politics, as per usual. And it's time, I think, to, given what's coming up this week, we're going out on Tuesday. By Friday, the Scottish Conservative Conference will have kicked off in Aberdeen. And we will be welcoming the one, the only Boris Johnson back to Scotland in person for a address to the members of the Scottish Tory Conference. Alistair, what happened last week that has made that happen? So I believe you're referring to Douglas Ross's U-turn. So Reverse ferret is a preferred phrase. <laughs> people might remember that Douglas Ross had called, he kind of led the calls for Boris Johnson to resign over Partygate, uh, essentially saying his position was untenable. He was supported in this by pretty much all of the Scottish Conservative MSPs in Holyrood. And then last week, essentially U-turned in that and said that he no longer was calling for Boris Johnson to go and had withdrawn his letter from the backbench 1922 committee. I think, to be fair to Douglas Ross, he's taken a lot of stick over this. There's been a lot of criticism from opposition parties. I think the, the Lib Dems accused him of having the backbone of a jellyfish. I think, to be fair to Douglas Ross, in the context of the Scottish Tory conference, which is obviously coming up in a few days, I think he's probably made a sensible decision for his party in the sense that there is the situation in Ukraine. There is this kind of global crisis now. It does seem quite, you know, for, for better or worse, Partygate does seem quite small compared to that. And I think when you've got this conference coming up, this would have dominated it in many ways. He would have been asked repeatedly by journalists. There have been a lot of questions about it. Boris Johnson, although he's now supposed to be there in person, was going to be addressing it via video link. So he would have been a presence in some way, shape or form. So I think he's done what he can to try and preempt that, try and cut that question out of it so that the conference can then focus on other matters. And whether or not you think he has done quite a cowardly thing or whatever your kind of views on it are, I think as a party leader, what he's done does make sense in that context. I don't know what anyone else thinks. Hey, what was he else supposed to do? Like it, he needed, it, it, could, it was it was incomprehensible, the idea they would continue on with him having said the prime minister should go and then go into local elections. And I don't really think the Ukraine crisis changes the fact that the prime minister appears to have been caught lying. But it does change the fact that there is now a really easy get out for Douglas, who previously was probably thinking, well, he's not gone, 
time's going on, what happens now? Uh, so it it puts the party back together. It doesn't undo any of the things that he said about the prime minister, and it doesn't undo the fact that the prime minister attended parties, and he said he didn't know about the parties. Then he said that he didn't attend any parties, and then he said, you know, I was present but not involved in the parties. But it it really helps Douglas because I, it was unsustainable, and you would speak to other people, not just in the Scottish, not in the Scottish Conservatives, but MPs more generally, and even a few ministers, and they were thinking you know, one of them is not long for this political world. One of them will have to go. So this gets him, uh, it gets him off the hook, really. And I don't, and, but the, I don't think the Ukraine crisis really changed anything. This, this, will, this will end or this will continue if it's going to be some sort of frozen conflict. And then the police report will come out and the prime minister could indeed face a fine or worse expelled um, by the police. And then what does Douglas do then? Because he has broken the laws, he has caught and he said he'd do it. Does, it, does that no longer does he no longer care if he gets caught? For now, it's easy. But if the prime minister has indeed broken the rules, and gets done for it. What does he do then? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't want to suggest that party gate doesn't matter anymore because it does. I mean, it's a case of yeah. you know, uh, you know, the leader of a country ostensibly not following the rules that he set for the rest of the country. It, it does matter, but it's just that the the overall context has changed. And you're right; it does make it easy for Douglas Ross in that situation to then say, you know, look at this global crisis. You know, this is not a time of crisis like this we've got to all come together we've got to show unity uh and that's an easy route out for him but i also think it's you know it's understandable i think a lot of a lot of the public will understand it i'm tempted to disagree a wee bit alistair i feel i totally get it on the perspective of like a leadership issue that douglas ross needs to do that but even kind of asking people what they think about kind of his withdrawal there is like you know the rolling of eyes there's people going off for goodness sake like what's happening like he he stood his ground and he created that very scottish centric lead for uh, the conservatives which is kind of what we were talking about in the last podcast with labor kind of reaching out for a more scottish centric crowd i feel like he might lose that by doing this and he is yet again kind of going back to the uk government which, as we know, Boris isn't popular here. So, yeah, he might he might lose that crowd and he might lose that support, which he is jeopardising as the elections come up. It'll be interesting to see, won't it, how public opinion has changed on Boris Johnson over the last few months, particularly. We know it's changed vaguely to the positive, or at least on a positive uh, uptick in the UK as a whole. But in Scotland, he's got a much bigger task on his hands to, you know, overcome his his popularity issues. Boris Johnson in Scotland is a incredibly unpopular figure. The only politician in Scotland who is more unpopular than Boris Johnson is Alex Salmond. And the issue for for the Scottish Conservatives is if you're, I think, almost seen to be backing such an unpopular horse, it's it, it'll be difficult to sell that to the population, particularly the May elections coming up. It was interesting. There's a story to in. Monday, Scotsman, as you're listening to it, about the uh, four words in the in the Scottish Conservative conference booklet, in which Boris Johnson praises uh, Douglas Ross's quote excellent leadership, and also lauds the party for quote sticking together and being very and that he's very proud for the party of sticking together. Obviously, uh, Alistair, that, I mean that's kind of completely against reality, given the number of MSPs, Scottish Conservative MSPs, who are calling for Boris's head to go a month ago. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the introduction to, you know, a party agenda booklet. I mean, it's, he's going to say positive things about Douglas Ross. It would be remarkable if he didn't. I think it'd be even more of a story if he was, you know, 
not seeing positive things. It's just it's just his job in some ways. But yeah, I mean, it is this, the sticky situation remains that you know up until very recently. Douglas Ross had been calling for Boris Johnson to resign and he'd been supported by the vast majority, I think pretty much almost all of the Holyrood group. And those tensions haven't gone away and I don't think they'll be forgotten either. But at the same time, you know, it is, it is a way for them just to try and to try and move on and kind of dampen down the issue. And I think, you know, I kind of referred to this a bit earlier on, but if he hadn't done this, I mean, before the Ukraine crisis, we kind of expected the, the Scottish Tory conference to be dominated by infighting north and south of the border. And for that to be the, the absolute main story of the conference, I mean, it would have just dominated all, all two days of it. But the situation with that has changed now, I think. And this has just kind of shifted it even more. So it will still be an issue. It will still come up. I think they'll still be asked about it. Douglas Ross will still be asked about it. But it's just not... It's not what it was. I think it's kind of events. Events have intervened and changed things a little bit. Does it not make it tougher for Douglas Ross this week that he's done this? Because it, it's it's his conference at the end of the day. It's not Boris Johnson's conference. It's Douglas Ross's conference. He's going to be asked every single interview he does by broadcast and by print for an explanation as to why he thinks Boris Johnson is is suitable for a prime minister when he wasn't a month ago. That's a really hard sell. I don't think it makes it tougher because I kind of, you know, I think it's, it's much harder to be asked a question that you can't really answer. Uh, and if he was being repeatedly, if he hadn't U-turned in this and he was being repeatedly asked about Boris Johnson's position, but he couldn't really answer it, then that would have been much more of a problem. And I think in this way, whether or not you agree or disagree with his logic, he does have an answer. And I think he, he'll just stick to it. And it's emba- it is embarrassing for them. Don't get me wrong. It is embarrassing. But I think they'll be able to put up with that embarrassment. Is it not easier, really? Because he doesn't have to answer the question now. He can go, they'll go, blah, blah, blah. And he'll go, well, we don't know if you know, there's a war on. Maybe yeah. read a book. Like, it's not, he doesn't have to do It's not really about why is Boris Johnson fit to be prime minister. That's not the answer he has to give. It's, we are in a situation where we cannot have a change of prime minister. Uh, we all need to be pulling together and show unity. So it's completely separating the man from the situation. I think it's I think it's quite smart and quite an easy thing to do, and it gets him off the hook. Do we think the public will buy it? I think if you're already going to vote Scottish Conservative, you're already going to vote for Scottish Conservative. And I don't know. I'm, you know, I I'm not necessarily someone who would be like, oh, you know, it's a great decision. I love Boris Johnson, but there is a war on. Like what? I guess Douglas is supposed to be in the chamber trying to oust Boris Johnson, or he should, should be trying to help people get out of Ukraine and talking about that. But the question like, what is... Are people, what are people's priorities right now? But if, does he toe that lane? Will he toe the lane of, oh, well, there is a war on? He might. He he will most probably do that, but will he add in kind of, oh, and I wholeheartedly support Boris, and there's more of a kind of loving relationship shown there. That, that, would, that would definitely anger the public um so fair to say oh yeah read a book and yeah there's a war on of course he's going to tow that line but what other lines is he going to tow that might show more kind of favorable support towards boris that might anger the public like connor mentioned maybe well i think he's he's kind of i mean his statement about this you know did kind of have this line in it about essentially you know the need for unity at this time and kind of pausing all other things to focus on that and I think that is something, I mean, I don't know what the public would think about this, but I think it's something that a lot of people would understand considering how serious the situation is. And also the impact that the Ukraine crisis is going to have on the cost of living crisis over here. I mean, it's it's not something that's just happening, you know, 
far away and doesn't really affect us. It has a very concrete impact, you know, not just humanitarian issues, but also just issues in, you know, the price of fuel, the cost of living crisis, things that are going to become real issues in the coming months. And I think, yeah, it's hard, it's always hard to tell. I mean, I think it's hard to tell initially how much um, the fact that he'd called on Boris Johnson to resign had really benefited the Scottish stories. Uh, I don't know if there's polling done in that or anything. Um, so it's always hard to tell what the what impact the U-turn will have on that situation. Mm. The energy crisis is especially pressing, right? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I got an email through this morning saying that my bills are going up by 50% in April. So like you said, uh, or over 50%. So like you said, that will be very on the minds of people as we come up to the May elections. I suppose that's that's arguably, well, let's cover it and talk about it for a bit. You know, we've got one, one of the biggest question marks over the UK government at the minute is whether or not they're going to go ahead with the national insurance increase as planned in April. There's no sign of any U-turn on that. But do we think that at some point reality is going to bite potentially? And, you know, we we had the National Farmers Union yesterday on um, the Sunday show on the BBC talking about, you know, if food inflation, if prices of food, i.e. food inflation, doesn't keep up with the cost of production, which is rocketing due to the cost of fertilizer production, due to the cost of energy, um, then we'll have lower production of food and that will sp- result in spiraling food inflation even worse than it might be. And this all comes down to fundamentally energy prices and the fact that they are skyrocketing. There's going to be pressure on the Conservative government to you know, row back on the national insurance increase. I wonder what, what you think, uh, Alex, in particular, on whether or not there is... There is obviously sustained pressure from parts of opposition and charities to to overturn that. But do you think there's a realistic proposition of that happening um, as a response, an ongoing response to the Ukraine crisis and and uh, the cost of living crisis? Uh, <laughs> I don't really know. I don't think the government are looking at making changes. They're being urged to make changes all the time. Um, the even like on the refugee stuff, they have had to be dragged into it. Um, they have made announcements and gone like, this is enough, this is fair. Uh, and then it turns out that actually the Home Office uh, presence on the border in Calais was three people giving out crisps, um, which sounds like a joke, really, that the response to a crisis like that is three people giving out crisps. But that's what it was compared to like other nation states. So I don't think there's any pressure really on the government to change things because they basically just get dragged into doing the right thing or as close as possible to the right thing at the last minute. Alistair, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, they've certainly not made any indication that they're going to change their minds on the national insurance rise. I would be surprised at this stage if they did in some ways. But yeah, the cost of living crisis is going to, it's going to become, as I said before, an absolutely major issue. The price of fuel, the price of food, all these things going up. And I think it's interesting as well, the, the impact of the Ukraine crisis on the kind of the, the broader energy debate, something that's really important in Scotland and the kind of oil and gas and the North Sea and whether we need to do more about securing our own energy, security, um, and all these things become quite live again. I, I know the fracking debate is kind of rearing its head again as well. So it's just having it's having a major impact. And I think the government, I mean, like Alex says, they, they do seem to give the impression sometimes that they um, can be quite slow to act and get dragged into things. And obviously they're going to have to, yeah, they're going to have to take some major measures. It remains to be seen what, what those will be. I mean, it's worth saying on the national insurance stuff, we already knew that backbench conservatives are not happy 
about the idea that everyone is going to get taxed to high heaven and that we're all being hit so hard on the pocket. And I think there was a non-binding vote led by Labour that the opposition won on, you know, should be, which was like, we should look into doing other things, not doing this. But the government are going to stand firm because they want to raise money. They know they'll probably get away with it. So we saw this at PMQs where Labour were calling for a windfall tax and trying to suggest there are alternatives to raise money rather than things like national insurance because it's not really going to make enough money. And it was notable that the Prime Minister didn't, instead of focusing on like why this is the best way to do it or best way to raise money, instead kind of defended the companies and was like, you know, the, the, the member opposite billions of pounds and, and, they are, and they are changing in the right way and they're going back and we should be supportive of them because they are turning slowly and we have to remember these are good companies. World companies, and he would tax them, and what will that lead to? Them leaving and taking their business elsewhere, which is obviously ridiculous. But that's that's the way they do it. He was defending the corporations we already know have raised, have made more money than they can handle. They literally said they have made more money than they know what to deal with. They have ridiculous profits, um, and that would be a way to address the cost of living um, with a windfall tax because they have too much money. But you know, it all gets a little bit too Corbyn, a little bit too, too socialist for you know the prime minister to be comfortable with. Unfortunately, I have to uh, praise that Boris Johnson impression. It was it was like he was in the room. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I was also going to say, I mean, the, the thing with the national insurance rights as well is the way the government seems to frame it is, you know, if you want extra money, billions of pounds extra for the NHS for social care, then this is what we do to get that. So it's almost if you are trying to argue against it, they will say, well, where where else is that money going to come from? So it's they're certainly giving no indication that they're going to reverse on that policy. It's remarkably out of the SNP playbook, actually, that that arguably the SNP take a leaf out of the, of the UK government playbook, because one of the recurring points brought up by Kate Forbes during the budget discussions was, you know, you've said you want this amount of money spent on the NHS or on care homes or on, I think, the classic was the £15 an hour you know, pay rise for social care staff and also, you know, local authority funding. And the SNP's response was consistently, you know, well, you've said this, but what? where do you want the money to come from in, in, in the Scottish budget? And the UK government clearly doing the same sort of talk about, you know, fiscal responsibility and all of that. What I wanted to mention in regards to like oil and gas, to talk about taking a leaf out of each other's play, but the Tories up here have you know, started talking about basically borrowed the SNP slogan from the 70s of it's Scotland's oil. And there was a, a debate last week, Alistair, which you covered, where the Tories called for, you know, additional, quicker extraction of, of oil and gas in, in the North Sea. And, you know, plenty of Scottish Conservative social media stuff, you know, saying SNP must use Scottish, not Russian energy, you know, will deal a blow to Vladimir Putin by accelerating oil and gas extraction in the northeast do you think that strategy actually works i mean it's obvious that they've they've spotted a weakness in the northeast in terms of what the smp's support is but do you think that will work going forward electorally that's a good question i think they they certainly like you say seem to think that they can make inroads in the northeast using this tactic and i yeah, i thought that line yeah deal a blow to vladimir putin by kind of ramping up oil and gas production in the north sea was interesting. I think it's such a it's such a, a difficult issue in the sense that I don't know if it'll work just because the, the national debate now is so much, you know, on the focus of reaching net zero, ramping up green energy, moving away from oil and gas production. And I don't know how much the public would appreciate going back in that now. I, I don't know. You'd need to 
you need to maybe do some polling on that. But yeah, they certainly seem to think it's going to make inroads in the North Sea. And it's worth saying as well that the, the S&P government's position, Nicola Sturgeon's position, um, is essentially that even if you tried to go down that route, you know, it would take, to expand an oil field, take, it would take months, if not years. You know, if you're going to open up new fields, it'd take years, if not a decade, potentially. And these things are not something that's going to help in the short term. However, there are those that argue that while it won't help with the cost of living crisis in the short term, it would help with the long term energy security which is, a, I suppose, a kind of separate but linked argument. But yeah, it's something that I think they will they will keep on going with this argument. But I don't know how successful it will be. Hannah, what do you think? I mean, you you, you were at COP26, so was I. So was, so was Alistair. You know, it was a, it was a big moment in, for, for Scottish politics in terms of hosting COP, COP26. Do, did you, do you think that the public will look at the Tories and think, well, you're a bit behind the times? Well, I think with COP26, especially looking at how like kind of Glaswegians saw it was a total performative act that wasn't really, I don't know, that didn't have a legacy. That was the issue with a lot of people when they looked at COP26 here in Glasgow. It was more so, what is the legacy that this has left behind? You know, the Commonwealth has given us other things, but what, what has COP given us? So it's hard to say if there's a kind of environmentalist in each and every one of us as a result of it, if, if that makes sense. It really does strike me as maybe, and it sounds maybe brutal and maybe I'm not giving part to like the eco warriors that are in Scotland, but it might just be something that people don't particularly care about. I hate to say that, but with COP26, sure, there is a legacy. And obviously, that is a great line for us as journalists to run. You know, we've got this, you know, we, we've been the host of a, of a climate change conference. But really, when you look at what the actual people here are thinking, it might just not be on their minds. Well, let's uh, move on a bit to talk about uh, another controversy from last week that was brewing in the background until pretty much Wednesday, when the future of the Scottish Qualifications Authority, the SQA, was finally addressed by Shirley Ann Somerville, the Education Secretary. Alistair, take us through a bit of the history behind that and what happened last week. There was a, a big brouhaha about you know the quality of revision support guides that the SQA had provided pupils. And then on Wednesday, we had the announcement of the future of the SQA and another education agency, Education Scotland. Yeah, so the big announcement was essentially that Scotland's kind of education exam agencies are to be kind of scrapped and replaced. So we already knew the Scottish Qualifications Authority, the SQA, and was to be kind of broken up and replaced. And this is basically confirming that. And it's also saying that Education Scotland will also be replaced. It comes in the back of there was an international report by the OECD that basically um, kind of looked at Scotland's curriculum for excellence, its kind of education system. And while it Back to as a whole, I think I'm right in saying, it's essentially said that in the in the senior years of education, there was far too much focus on exams. So this is kind of an attempt to address that. And I think this is meant to happen by summer 2024. Uh, and opposition parties have basically said that it's, it's spin, essentially. It's a, a kind of rebranding exercise rather than actually the, the serious change that the country's education system needs. And I think, you know, this comes in the back of a kind of sense, I suppose, that the SNP's stewardship of public services, which education is one, has kind of gone backwards a little bit. It's kind of slipping education in Scotland, which used to be, you know, historically Scotland has always thought of itself as, you know, its education system has been very proud of it, very proud of the kind of egalitarian nature of it. And now 
the accusation is that standards are slipping. And we also, worth saying, comes in the back of you know, two years of massive disruption in schools in which exams were the focus of so much attention. They were obviously kind of scrapped because of the pandemic, replaced with kind of teacher judgment. And that fed into a kind of wider debate about whether the exam system we have at the moment is one we actually want to keep or whether we want to move away from it or try and call it some kind of hybrid system where there's less focus in these kind of high stakes exams in which your entire kind of, you know, whether you get to university or not, what job you get into kind of depends on them. Some people view them as unfair or, you know, benefiting well-off students more than those from less well-off areas. It's an ongoing debate in Scotland. And I think, you know, it, it will be something that, you know, the opposition parties have focused on quite a lot in recent years and will certainly focus on going forward. And I, I don't think the replacement of SQA in Education Scotland is going to be an easy process in terms of proving whether or not it makes a difference. And in terms of, uh, we, we, you talk about education, it was one of Nicola Sturgeon's top priorities when she came into power as First Minister following that Alex Hammond. You know, she she told this, the Scottish public, you know, judge me on education. And a lot of people, both in the sector, but also, in, you know, in opposition would argue that she has roundly failed. I mean, one, you, you mentioned the, the exams scandals, you know, that, you know, you had a... A, a situation in 2020 where exams were cancelled and then the teacher judgment was changed unilaterally by the now infamous algorithm you had in 2021 exams cancelled last minute um and and pupils you know being forced to put in you know sit mock exams in in place of exams and that that hurting and then this year we've had, got similar problems with covid disruption in schools and you know, the SQA not not responding adequately to that. It's been one of those things that does seem to be a bit of an Achilles heel for Sturgeon. And it seems difficult to see how a long reform process is going to take the heat off her in the short term. Yeah, I mean, like you say, she states her reputation on education and on specifically closing the attainment gap between richer and poorer pupils. And it's something that has been quite stubborn in Scotland. And there's not really much evidence that that's changing in any kind of drastic way. And it was something that was present as well, even when exams were scrapped and you know, relying on teacher judgment and the kind of, like you say, the, the controversy over the algorithm system and the impact that that had on schools and less well-off areas. I suppose to be fair to Nicola Sturgeon, addressing these issues is such a mammoth task and it's something that is so hard to change, kind of change the way the system operates, you know, who's benefiting from it and who's not. It's something that will take a long time I think the, the frustration on the side of opposition parties is just that progress has been too slow. Uh, and those who think that more radical moves should have to should take place kind of view stuff like the um the kind of recent announcements over the replacement of the SQA in Education Scotland as kind of cosmetic, you know, they're kind of like I said, a rebranding exercise rather than actually addressing the issue, they're just replacing it with you know yet another quango. Hannah, do you do you do you think younger Scots who've gone through the last few years has the experience of Scottish education impacted how uh, people look at the SNP? Because it was one of those things, you know, where there was such disappointment and anger in 2020 in August of that year following that algorithm. And a lot of people were going, you know, well, why why has the SNP done this? And a lot of people saying that we won't vote SNP in future. Do you think that's actually happened? You know, SNP are so reliant on this demographic shift towards them as older, more conservative-leaning voters 
you know, drop out of the of the electoral register and younger voters come in as they get younger. They're hoping that that pushes them towards independence. Do you, have you noticed a shift in how young people approach the SNP? Well, it being a quite a quite some time since I was at school, maybe eight or nine years. <laughs> but um, no, I definitely, I definitely do fear and worry for for younger people with with their exams being disrupted. You know, like like as was mentioned with the pandemic, how much disruption that caused. I mean, when you're young and in that moment, you'd probably be like, yes, exams are off, brilliant. Uh, but kind of looking at what the SNP are hoping to kind of emphasise and introduce here, yeah, maybe as a young voter, you would feel like that. You would feel this is something that could work in our favour, especially with the look at, you know, I know that we mentioned that it wouldn't really kind of impact the attainment gap, but this being fresh on the minds and something that is being considered will will stand out to, to young people who, yeah, maybe are really frustrated, annoyed, don't feel like they're getting the support that they have in the school. And a lot of people feel from other backgrounds, maybe more working class backgrounds, that they, they don't have that support. So a focus in on education where young people do feel like they have been deprived of something and, you know, it's the kind of first look in to maybe what you're doing for the rest of your life if your career is made off that you know that is so important to them it's a real kind of insight into yeah how how you want your government to view you if you're if you're being considered with your education it's a really important thing to focus in on education for young people if they're kind of beginning to vote that's all we've got time for this week on the steamy thank you very much at home for listening and we'll see you next week after the spectre of the scottish tory conference has come and gone thank you very much all for joining me and thank you very much at home for listening the steamy a laudable production for the scotsman